from the letter to the Philippians. In the first line, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Don't you want to ask Paul about this? For real? Rejoice in the Lord always? Even in the midst of inexplainable horror? In a world of senseless violence against the most vulnerable? When I read these words on days like today, when I'm writing the sermon and dealing with these issues on Friday morning, I, I want to say, this really strikes the ear as impossible or inhuman or, for that matter, is it even Christian? Didn't Paul pay attention to the Psalms that he had learned in the synagogue? that he had heard in the temple? What about Psalm 102? Here's David crying out, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Here's David saying, My days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. I forget to eat. My bones cling to my flesh. My enemies taunt me. I mingle tears with my drink. And then he looks at God and he says, God, because of your anger, you have thrown me down and my days are like an evening shadow and I wither away like grass. I want to say to Paul, when David wrote these words, was he rejoicing? What about Psalm 88 when Haman the Ezrahite cried out for help day after day, asking God, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He points his finger at God and he says, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults are destroying me. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I want to say to Paul, when Haman was praying this, was he rejoicing? And for that matter, what about Jesus? See, I want to say to Paul, did he always rejoice? What about when we find him weeping at the grave of Lazarus? And what about when he's disappointed at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration because of his disciples' puny faith and obstinate pride? And what about his burst of anger in the temple? Did he rejoice in the garden, Paul? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when his prayers were so intense they turned into sweat of blood, did he rejoice when his disciples forsook him? And what about when Peter denied him and he looked across the yard and saw him in the eye? Was Jesus rejoicing, Paul? Did Jesus rejoice when the soldiers mocked him and beat him and spat upon him? I don't remember Jesus rejoicing on the cross. This is what I would say to Paul. Don't you want to ask, Paul, really? I mean, I think we read it so fast and we've been so inoculated, we no longer read the Bible as anything but a fairy tale. We just zip right by and it's some other story of some other world. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'll tell you, rejoice always. So the question, I think, is does Paul mean what he really, does he really mean what he says? Or is he naive? Is he some Pollyanna? Is he naive to the pain we actually go through? Or maybe he's just exaggerating to make a point. 
Well, the short answer is yes, he means what he says. Absolutely no, Paul is not naive to suffering. And no, he's not exaggerating to make a point. Philippians. It's a letter of friendship written by the Apostle Paul while he was in Rome, 800 miles away from the people of Philippi. It's the early 60s, the first century A.D. 10 or 11 or 12 years earlier, he had gone to the city of Philippi as a missionary. He had shared the story of Jesus. He had seen the first converts in that area. And he had started the first church. Now, we don't know how long he stayed there, but we know why he left. He left because a mob turned on him and his missionary partner, Silas. And after the mob turned on them, they were arrested, Paul and Silas, for disturbing the peace. And then the soldiers beat them. And then the government arrested them. And they were thrown into jail. And when they were finally released, they were run out of town. So that's how this church gets started. And just over a decade before writing this letter, they were birthed in the context of hostility and conflict and suffering. Look with me if you have your Bible. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, Paul is writing, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, the Christians in Philippi, they were birthed in suffering and they're continuing in suffering. They're suffering because they've got enemies. And those enemies are harming them. And not only that, we know from other historical evidence that they are in a state of extreme poverty. Not poverty like Americans know. The poverty where there is no social safety net. The life or death kind of poverty. So here's Paul, 800 miles away from Philippi, and he writes these words that Brian read to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I tell you, rejoice. And here's another astonishing thing. He's not tucked away in a safe hotel when he writes this. Some of you may know. He's in prison. He's been arrested again because of his faith. He's been sitting in prison for two years awaiting who knows what. It ultimately leads to his death. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This Paul who exhorts us to rejoice always, he knew far more hardship than any of us will experience in 10 lifetimes. Prisons, beatings beyond counting, whipped by the Jews five times 
beaten with rods three times. Beaten to death by throwing stones at him two times. Shipwrecked. Threatened by the sea, by highway robbers, by hypocritical Christians, and always anxious about the state of the churches he's planted. Just a few sentences beyond our reading in Philippians this morning, Paul lays out some of the circumstances in which he's actually had to live out this exhortation to rejoice always. He knows what it means to get by on nothing. He knows what it means to be without the basic necessities. He knew what it was to be in want. Yet the same Paul, who experiences sufferings and hunger, this is the one who, re- who writes to a group of people suffering themselves and says, rejoice always. Paul means it. He's not exaggerating, and he is definitely less naive than you are. And recognizing that, taking him seriously, opens the door on a far more profound angle into this passage of Scripture. It's this. How? Take him at his word and then ask how. How do we do it? How are we supposed to rejoice when life is beating us down, when our addictions are winning, when we suddenly feel that the journey we're on is going down Down, farther down. How are we supposed to rejoice when all that is happening in our lives in this world is is swelling up to a true and horrible dimension? Paul points to how in the next verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul can rejoice because he knows that the Lord is near. Now look, throughout Scripture, joy is an effect of being in the presence of God. The sanctuary was the place of God's presence, and before His face, Israel was taught to rejoice and eat and drink. Psalm 1611, In your presence... There is fullness of joy. Psalm 21 verse 6. You make the king glad in your presence. Psalm 95 verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And of course the old 100. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence in this way. And then jumping to a tiny little part of the New Testament. The last few verses of Jude's letter. Where Jude praises Jesus Christ. Get this. Who is able to keep us from stumbling. And to present us blameless before the presence of his glory. With great joy. Joy is an effect of being in the presence of God. Why? Because the Lord himself is the fullness of joy. This is what we learn about God in the passage that Deidre read to us. 
Listen to these words again from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. You see, here what we see is that Yahweh the one and true God, is chasing the enemies of Jerusalem away. And he's rescuing the lame and the outcast. And all of the evil that Judah has suffered, all of these evils are going to be reversed. There will be a new creation. Yahweh himself will gather his people to himself. Israel's day of gloom, which the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah Paint a picture of so graphically. Israel's day of gloom will be turned to light and joy. Why? How will that happen? When Yahweh himself comes into the midst of them. Now listen to one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here is Yahweh in the midst of his people, a victorious warrior shouting and rejoicing over his bride. And Israel is caught up in this exultation. Daughter Zion is supposed to shout for joy. Why? Because Yahweh is in her midst. Israel is supposed to rejoice and exalt with all of her heart. Why? Because Yahweh, her lover, has returned and exalts over her with joy. Now, what I need you to see is that this is not merely a matter of responding to the joy of Yahweh's presence. It's about Israel being caught up into the joy of of Yahweh himself. Yahweh comes rejoicing to his people. He comes dancing and singing and exalting. He comes in triumph. And daughter Zion and daughter Jerusalem are caught up into that song. And that prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was born. <laughs> Have you ever noticed the beginning of Luke's gospel? As soon as the announcement is made about the birth of Jesus, song begins to break out everywhere. Mary sings when she sees Elizabeth. Zechariah sings when John is named. Angels sing to the shepherds. And Simeon sings when he sees the infant Jesus. You know what Luke is doing by telling the story this way? He's looking back to Zephaniah. He's saying the prophecy has been answered. All of creation is caught up into the joy because Yahweh has returned to his people. He's in their midst and everything has been caught up into this joy. Everywhere the news comes, songs break out. And then when Jesus grows into a man and his miracles and his ministry, they are the evidence that the time of God's return to his people is here. The day of light and joy that Zephaniah spoke about are here. 
Jesus' deeds and miracles and teachings, they show that Yahweh is in the midst of Israel, exulting in joy, singing over his bride like a victorious warrior who has rescued her from being a hostage. Remember the prophecy from Zephaniah, I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise. Isn't this what happens throughout Jesus' ministry? The lame are healed. The outcasts are given new life. Think of all those whom Jesus delivered from sickness. Think of the woman bleeding for 12 years, how he delivered her from shame. You see, this is the fulfillment. Jesus is the king. Yahweh himself is in the midst of his people. And the joy that filled the air when the angels sang at his birth, this joy, the joy of Yahweh, it overflows Jesus and it gives new life to the lame and the outcast. Now we're ready to understand Paul in Philippians. Paul tells us to rejoice always. And what is his reason? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Because of the Lord's arrival and presence, we can rejoice in every circumstance. King Jesus has come into our midst. And when he ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit on us to fill us. We can rejoice in every circumstance because God is never distant. Because God is always at hand. He is nearer to us than anyone else. He's nearer to me than even myself. When we suffer hardships and needs, we should remember, we should remind ourselves that God is still there. That the Lord is at hand. He's at my hand. He's here. That I am still in the presence of God. And so I can be caught up into the joy of His presence. The psalmist. <laughs> Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall find me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the light of day for darkness is light to you. Paul can say rejoice in the Lord always when he's in prison, writing to people suffering deeply because he knows, he knows, he knows that Yahweh is coming to our midst. And even when we can't see him, the Lord is at hand. But we don't always know he's here. God is always here. But sometimes we cry out and he doesn't seem to hear us. Sometimes we're on the cross and we cry out with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can we rejoice in those moments when we cry out, but he doesn't seem to be coming? What is happening in those moments when we desperately want God to close the mouth of that friend who's been lying about us and he doesn't? When my mother dies and my husband is betraying me. When I don't know where the next paycheck is coming from. When work expects far more from me 
than any one person could ever deliver. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm covered in the cold sweat of all the stress that is washing over me. What is happening in these moments when I've lost the love of my life, when my child dies, when my body is racked with pain, when broken and rotting relationships are littering the ground of my life? When again and again, my parents don that well-worn garment of their disappointment in me. What does it mean to rejoice in times like these? When Jesus does not descend with the angels and stop Adam Lanza. What's going on when he's not there and there's no sign of his coming? Well, Paul has something even more dramatic and more dynamic in mind than what I've already said. For Paul, he can rejoice always for an even greater reason than the nearness of God. It's that the nearness of God is for Paul a double entendre. It's not only the spatial nearness that Jesus is actually near to me. It's the temporal nearness. Paul is saying, not only is the Lord close, but the Lord is returning soon. We are preparing, we're waiting, we're longing, we're expecting Christ to return and finish his work. To put evil and death to death forever. To remove forever all the darkness that enslaves and imprisons us. To end corruption once and for all. To make everything new again. And because this is going to happen, we can rejoice. And this is why we can rejoice even on weekends like this. We can rejoice in the presence of the Lord, sharing his joy. And in these moments when his presence and his joy is more hoped for than experienced, our joy is a joy in hope. In his letter to the Romans at one point, Paul's talking about suffering And he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our our rejoicing is not because we're ignoring the pain or because the pain isn't real. We rejoice in tribulations because we know that the darkness of this moment is not final. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not because that joy is fully realized here and now, but because it is being realized and it will be fully realized in the future. And in doing this, we are following Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews says, when he went to the cross, he went for the joy set before him. Despising its shame. We do them both at the same time. We hate, we hate, we hate the brokenness of this world. But we worship for the joy set before us. So even now, when so much stands against joy, when the Lord has hidden his face, and it doesn't appear to have any attention 
of showing it again. Even in the midst of searing loneliness, we rejoice because we rejoice in hope. We rejoice because he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All of this will be gone. So in Philippians, here is Paul who is suffering deeply, writing to a group of people, suffering deeply. And like Paul, and like the Philippians, we can rejoice in hope because the advent of the Lord is near. The Lord so loved you that he gave his only son He became flesh for you. He suffered all the limits and all the frustrations of your life. He was hated and opposed for you. He was arrested and tried for you. He was mocked and scourged and spat upon and he was sent to the cross for you. He came once for you. And he will come again. Rejoice in the Lord always. With tears streaming down on your face. Rejoice. Because the Lord is at hand. Even in the midst of inexplainable horror. In a world of randomly murdered children. In the face of hurricanes and tornadoes. That demolish families and car wrecks. And illness and disease. We know that the Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, one last thing. Rejoicing is an activity. It's something you do. And Paul is using a form of the verb here that means you do it continually until it becomes a habit. See, to be honest, for some of you, this moment has revealed that you have not developed the habit of rejoicing. What I'm saying, rejoice in the Lord always is a moral choice. When you wake up in the morning and throughout your day and before you go to sleep, it's something you do. It comes from your tongue and your lips and your vocal cords. It's not something you think. It's not some idealized ethereal thought. It's something you do. You rejoice in songs and words and prayers. And we're commanded to do this. And in moments like this, we sing. With tears streaming down our faces, we sing. Now the songs are different. Shout to the Lord. I've never sung it like that before. But we do it as an act of obedience. We sing because of our sure hope that Christ is coming and he will repair everything that is broken. He will undo all that is wrong and goodness will triumph. And when that grips our heart and our imagination and we make the moral choice of rejoicing day in and day out because we trust God to ultimately take care of all the enemies, to bring justice, to make all things new. When we do this, when we vocalize it in songs and words so frequently that it becomes a habit, can you imagine what would happen if enough of us in this room did this, that it was not only my habit and Josh's habit, but it was the habit of this group 
Can you imagine if for us as a church, rejoicing is a skill that we are good at? That when rejoicing, it becomes a matter-of-fact practice in our church, in good times and bad, even in the direst of circumstances, when we can learn the skill of rejoicing in the hope of glory, we will be made into the image of God. What I'm saying is that rejoicing is a choice. It is not a feeling. It's a habit we learn over time. And if we would develop the habit of rejoicing, it will nourish our souls. And as you and I learn to do this in tiny everyday ways, when not much is on the line, we will be equipped to do it in the darkness. When we're overwhelmed by profound evil. We must practice daily rejoicing. And as I do it and my family does it and you do it and your family does it, it will swell up into something astonishing. It will swell up into a church proficient in the skill of rejoicing. And our children will learn the hope of the resurrection. And we will taste the kingdom of God. Let's pray. I thank you, God, for those among us who have developed this skill through years and years of hard-won practice. I thank you for the testimony of the martyrs who sang in the face of the flames. I thank you for the righteous who've gone before us. For Paul and the Philippians. Help me, help us to continually rejoice so that it becomes a habit. And in moments like this, we shine like the stars in the universe as image bearers of your Son. In his name I pray. Amen.